0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, business affairs editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show... As the world's central bankers prepare to meet in America's remote wilds, Henry Kerr talks about what's on their minds,
3: they all stay in a, uh, a lodge, which uh, is we'll called the Jackson Hole Lodge, go hiking and so on, but also discuss a bit of monetary policy uh,
1: in their conference meetings.
2: And Sumaya Keynes and Ryan Avent round up the most interesting economic blogs this month, starting with the effects of the sharing economy.
1: Uber and TaskRabbit and Amazon, these all seem like amazing things, but are they, you know, is there a hidden cost?
0: What we're actually doing is preparing to sweep aside Uh, personal relationships entirely, so we don't ever have to talk to any humans, ever.
2: But first, central bankers from around the world are meeting later this week in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to discuss monetary policy in an era of low growth and depressed interest rates. With me on the line now is our US economics editor, Henry Kerr. Henry, first give us a feel for what happens in Jackson Hole, who attends, and what's on the agenda.
3: Well, Jackson Hole is an annual conference hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, one of the uh, regional Fed banks. And at it, monetary policymakers from all across America, but also internationally, uh, come and discuss a, a set theme. And they all stay in a, uh, a lodge, uh, which is called the Jackson Hole Lodge, go hiking and so on, but also discuss a bit of monetary policy uh, in their conference meetings.
2: Okay. And this year, they're looking at sort of whether the old orthodoxies around monetary policy still hold good. And in particular, there are questions around whether the the sort of bedrock of uh, macroeconomic policy, um, the regime of inflation targeting is still fit for purpose. Perhaps you could first take us through what inflation targeting is.
3: For over two decades now, inflation targeting has been the dominant uh, monetary policy regime for for central banks around the world. And it says that central banks should target a low and stable inflation rate and that that's the main thing they have to worry about when it comes to managing the economy and and changing interest rates to achieve their goals. Now, that happens. The the Federal Reserve only explicitly adopted its inflation target of 2% in 2012, uh, but it's widely accepted that it had been implicitly targeting inflation before that. It just hadn't publicly announced its target. Now, central banks, including the Fed, also worry about unemployment and growth in the short run. But what the kind of inflation targeting regime says is that you only, you only ever have to worry about those things in the short term. And over a longer horizon, what really matters is hitting this inflation goal. And this has been established over, as I said, about two decades of international experience, but also theoretical advances in macroeconomics that have said this is the way to go.
2: And basically, it's worked incredibly well, which raises the question, if it has worked so well, why, why start to rethink it? Why the need to ditch it?
3: The problem that the Fed and other central banks face today is that, despite the fact that America's economy is coming quite close to the Fed's target, unemployment below 5% and core inflation, that's inflation excluding energy prices and food prices, is 1.6%, which is only just below... the target. Interest rates remain very low. And what this means is that if there's a recession, if recession struck next week, say, the Fed would have hardly any scope to cut its interest
2: rates. So the task is, therefore, to drive interest rates up. And John Williams, the president of the San Francisco Fed, um, has already floated some ideas on how to do that. And one of those is simply a higher inflation target. Would that work?
3: Well, the idea with a higher inflation target is that over the long run, it should lead to higher interest rates. And the reason for that is that the, the Fed controls interest rates in the short term, but in the long term, the inflation-adjusted interest rates, that's the return you get in the bank after subtracting inflation, whether it be 2% or 4%, that's kind of dictated by the economic fundamentals. So in theory, if you push up your inflation target, eventually you'll have higher interest rates as well, and then you'll be able to cut them further I think the difficulty with that proposal is that it may be one that works in the long run. It's unlikely that they will achieve 4% inflation and therefore higher interest rates before the next recession. If you look at the recent history of inflation, since they announced their 2% inflation target uh, in 2012, they've undershot it almost the entirety of the time that the target's been public. So the idea that if they come along tomorrow and say... there's going to be 4% inflation and suddenly they'll be able to hit that goal and, and then get interest rates up quickly to create some leeway to cut them in a, in a downturn is, I think, a bit optimistic.
2: Now, there are, there are other options to consider, and one of them is nominal GDP targeting. And for, for people who aren't familiar with that term, what is it and why might it be preferable?
3: So a nominal GDP target is a target for the total amount of cash spending in an economy, or equivalently, the uh, total amount of income in an, in an economy, that the reason you would target the total amount of spending rather than, say, prices or, or, or something else is that it frees the Fed from one of its uh, main problems, which has been uh, the trade off between. Inflation and unemployment in the short term. The Fed can basically control the amount of demand in the economy and which is one thing, but it's got two goals, uh, keep inflation low and keep unemployment low. Nominal GDP combines those two goals into one and lets the supply side of the economy determine how nominal GDP breaks down into inflation and how it breaks down into growth. And what that means is that if say a high oil prices or some other supply shock comes along, that might send growth uh, up but inflation down, the central bank no longer would have to worry about how to respond to that with its two indicators going in opposite directions. Uh, The economy would be able to tolerate high growth and low inflation, or in periods in low growth, when you need a bit more inflation, it would go that way.
2: Okay, Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you have any thoughts on Jackson Hole and the Fed, let us know. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Now we move on to the economic blogosphere. Gone are the days when the most important and exciting debates in economics were confined to stuffy academic journals. Today they play out in full view online. Blogs from big-name economists like Paul Krugman, Tyler Cowen and Diane Coyle cover everything from the technical to the panoramic. Where else can you find a devastating critique of dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models or intense debate over the nature of soaring executive pay? For all its merits, however, the blogosphere is vast. There are literally hundreds of blogs and many more debates happening at any given time. It's hard to keep track. And that's where our economic blog roundup comes in. Our economists Sumaya Keynes, based in London, and Ryan Avent in Washington will occasionally sift through the blogosphere to bring you their take on the most interesting debates happening within it. And we'll hear the first of these roundups now.
1: Okay, so the first thing I thought we could talk about was this interesting blog by Branko Milanovic, who has been talking about commodification and niceness. The question, I think, is, are we becoming less nice? You know, Uber and TaskRabbit and Amazon, these all seem like amazing things. But are they, you know, is there a hidden cost uh, to all of that that we really need to think about? So his argument is that, you know, there are lots of things that we used to do in the household or, you know, because we loved someone or felt a duty towards them that are now being done in the market. So cooking, cleaning, childcare. And the move to this gig economy where we we pay people um, to do these little tasks for us means that personal relationships are becoming less important. So, you know, I might not make a meal anymore. I might just go and buy something to microwave. But that, in the long run, that means that the relationship I'm forming with the person I'm cooking for isn't so strong.
0: Yeah, I thought the bit where he, he talks about the tasks that are done within the house seems kind of super romanticized and like a vision of of past life that everyone loved that, that maybe isn't accurate. But let, let's start off by talking about kind of the gig economy side of things and particularly how services like Uber and things like that are, are changing the way we interact with each other. Does, in your experience, when you use these kinds of services, do you feel like there's less of a personal connection than there was in the past?
1: I don't know. I mean, so there is a question. So first of all, there are plenty of things that I do that you know, it's opening up markets that just wouldn't have existed anymore. So whereas before I might have stayed in a hotel, now I use an Airbnb and I'm staying in someone's house, right? So that's actually, actually like much
0: more intimate, isn't exactly, it? Exactly,
1: exactly. So the, there's that. There's also embedded into a lot of these apps is this idea of reputation. Um, whereas before, if I take, in say, a black cab and the driver was really, really rude, that you know, that was it. That was the end of our relationship. But now, you know, in an uber if someone's really really horrible to me I'm gonna give them a one-star rating and so actually these kind of platforms have built in these huge incentives to be nice to you right so well
0: I mean one of the things that that seems interesting about it is that he's sort of talking about like a coarsening and a monetization of these sorts of things but actually, I mean, this incentive was kind of there before, like in a cab, there was the thought that if you did a good job, the driver did a good job, you give him a tip. you give him you give him cash mm-hmm. at the end of the trip. Whereas now we're actually taking cash out of the uh, the transaction, and you're you're relying more on kind of markers of social reputation.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's another point, which is that perhaps the kinds of relationships, you know, that we're cultivating now aren't as good, right? So perhaps if someone's being nice to me now because they're scared, I'm going to give them a bad rating. Maybe that's not as real as the relationship we might have had before. So if you so if you take, for example, um, a waitress, right. um, under the old system, you know, I might have seen her every week, um, and might you know I might have been super nice to her. I was interested in us building a relationship. Now, in this new gig economy, when people are moving between moving around in these kind of precarious jobs, there's less of an incentive for us to maintain that relationship. She has to be nice to me because she's you know worried that she's going to get fired if not. But maybe that you know niceness isn't as it sounds quite wishy-washy, but maybe it isn't as good or as meaningful as that old kind of niceness that was based on those, those longer-term relationships.
0: Maybe, although perhaps, you know, we were always overstating the extent to which service professionals in a customer relationship were being... Genuine. I mean, I'm sure there, you know, there are lots of cases where there were genuine kind of, was well, genuine warmth and, and connection, but probably a lot of other times people, start waiting tables were just trying to get through the day and, and and doing their best to earn tips.
1: Yeah. So I was just gonna just gonna say, going back to your earlier point, that's something that Diane Coyle raised in in a response blog to this, which is that you know, the commodification has actually been pretty great for women who is doing all of these things that previously were just being done in the household, right? So there are some winners from this. Women, particularly at the top of the income distribution, have much more power to go and, you know, pursue their own careers. Maybe the men have lost something from this, but actually lots of women have done well, so we shouldn't be too upset.
0: I mean, I I think that's absolutely right. And I think when you think about kind of relationships that are built on kind of a tacit social capital or connection that that's a, that creates a social barrier to, to people who are, are kind of an, on the out group you know and, and like the easiest way to think about this is, is trying to get a cab if you're a minority in a city like New York. It, it's a much different uh, thing if you uh, if you're a black man or a Latino than if you're a white man. And so in a way the, our, we're creating a society that's much more civil. Uh, by creating these institutions that don't just rely on the the kind of natural social tendencies in the head of the cab driver.
1: Mm. So, so Tim Harford actually had a really interesting uh, piece about, you know, whether trust is increasing. And he kind of points out that the, that the sharing economy makes it really makes it much easier to trust complete strangers. You know, I wouldn't have dreamed of staying in a stranger's house, but with Airbnb, I would. But he actually, you know, he gives this great anecdote about someone in a shop who trusts his child not to break some sunglasses because he's blonde and says, you know, the sign saying, don't take the sunglasses just for the Arab kids. Even in the market, actually, that trust might not be divvied out in, in the right way, I think is the point there.
0: Let me let me interject something here that is going to kind of try to look far ahead and, and see where this, this trend might lead in the future. Um, I think one thing that we see with... Uh, services that that try to break these tasks down into very kind of quantifiable, measurable components is that they clear the way for future automation. What we're actually doing is preparing to sweep aside uh, personal relationships entirely and put in place machines that so we don't ever have to talk to any humans ever.
1: There's also the theory that in the in the robot future people who have empathy who have those social skills are going to be much better remunerated for it those human skills are going to be much more important because they're just precisely the things that you can't automate away which is potentially a positive story for nice people i think i think the you know the big point in all of this as well for a really geeky economist is that obviously all this stuff is really, really hard to measure, right? So this is, you know, are we becoming less nice? How do we measure nice, right? We, we know in a, in a broad sense what that means, but, you know, we can measure these commodified things. We know that's happening. But, you know, measuring measuring niceness, empathy is, we, is really hard.
0: We need some gross, gross nice product. Absolutely. So let's turn to another topic. We've got a, a series of posts from Tyler Cowen, uh, which have generated responses uh, from others, looking at government borrowing and investing in big infrastructure projects like like railways and, and whatever. And there are a lot of people out there right now who say, you know what, governments can borrow it at, uh, for basically nothing, for 0%. It makes sense to for them to go out and, and borrow a lot and spend a lot of this money. Um, but Tyler Cowen says that's not actually the right way to think about this and that you have to instead think about what that money could be used for by, say, the private sector. And this has touched off uh, touched off a whole long discussion. Samea, so, have you been following this at all?
1: Yes, I have, of course. Uh, it's Yeah, it's super, super interesting. It seems to have really touched a nerve. It's such a great thing about the blogosphere with people kind of getting snippy. So I think Tyler Cowen was, was saying there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? If you spend this money... Um, that means that the money can't be used on something else. And he was saying that when the private sector makes those choices, the interest rates that they can get on their projects are much higher than the than the rate that the government can borrow at. And you really need to think about those higher rates because when the government spends money, it's effectively you know taking money away from that the private sector could be using.
0: Yeah. Now, I think there's a few things that Tyler is underplaying a bit here. He does acknowledge them at, at, at times. But uh, the first I would say is, are we actually operating at our full capacity as an economy? Because if, if there's a lot of resources not being used, you know, if, if there are a lot of workers that, that want to work and aren't working, uh, if there are construction firms, construction equipment sitting idle, then you don't have this kind of trade-off, right? You're, then the government um, is deploying its its resources uh, in a way that actually means there's there's more available uh, more income available to, to be spent by the private sector and, uh, and 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 that's you know that's what we'd want to see happen in this case. Uh, but I guess maybe he's thinking we're not there. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think the counter-argument that I think Brad DeLong made, which was that when you think about the rate of return that the private sector is getting on its projects, actually the private sector isn't investing in a whole bunch of projects that the government could invest in and get a get a good return on. And that's because, you know, when you think about the private sector, you're thinking about private returns. You're not thinking about the social returns. So I think Brad kind of gives this example of, for a private company, if, if Apple spends $5 um, and that generates you know, hundreds of dollars of well, billions of dollars of GDP, then that, that might not be a, a good thing for Apple if Apple doesn't make a huge return. But for society, it, much, it might be much, much better.
0: I mean, I thought Brad's post was really, really interesting, but it gets into kind of deep, philosophical, unanswerable questions, which is like, if you have, you know, if I have 10 bucks and I give it to the government, I can choose to give it to the government or choose to give it to the private sector... You know, how are we able to tell um, which is going to use that and generate the most social return? That's a very difficult question to answer, especially when you're talking about something like infrastructure.
1: I think I disagree with you on kind of this is too philosophical. A question of, you know, what, what should the government be thinking about when it's thinking about whether to spend money? You know, if you're a civil servant working in the Treasury and you're looking at a project and you're totting up the benefits and the costs, you need to have a kind of rule of thumb. Of you know what what rate of return makes this worthwhile, um, so I think that at some stage it, it does become a deeply deeply practical um, question. You know what 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 rate of return should I be thinking about? It's quite clearly not going to be exactly what rate of return you could get if you just um, poured money into equities in the private sector. It's probably going to be lower than that but you know th- there's a limit somewhere <laughs> um, and there are you know there are ways of, of, of thinking about what it could be and it's probably somewhere in the middle of what the private sector could get and what what borrowing costs are right now.
0: Let me just throw one other other wrinkle in uh, which is that the world seems to be short of safe assets like US treasury bonds which play a really important role in the financial system and are kind of a safe, Savings vehicle. And, and, and some people argue that that's a, one of the key reasons why borrowing costs are so low. So you have David Beckworth, an economist who is, who's looked at this, and he, he pointed out actually this week, it's really interesting, the Fed's share of treasuries uh, has been falling, which is a bit like unwinding uh, its asset purchases. And yet government borrowing costs in the U.S. have been going down which suggests that like the private sector is just gobbling up every available treasury that it can get its hands on. And so I think, you know, it's hard to know quite how it will all work, but it's it's possible that there's a, a value just to having more debt created by the government. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to use the funding you raise to, to invest in infrastructure, but that's something else to consider.
2: That was Ryan Avent and Sumaya Keynes with their Econ Blog Roundup. For a link to all the blogs mentioned by Sumeya and Ryan, including Branko Milanovic's take on the sharing economy and niceness, and also Tyler Cowan on the opportunity costs of borrowing, visit our own blog, FreeExchange, at economist.com. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat